0: you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And we get everybody's favorite topic today. Craig actually read ahead and prayed for me for this topic. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, Matthew 5, 27, where, uh, where Jesus talks about lust. So, um, Everybody's feathers might get a little ruffled today, but that's okay. It's, uh, I listened to a pastor one time. Someone asked um, him what the difference is between preaching and teaching. And his answer was that you haven't begun to preach the gospel until you have begun to rub up against people's lives. And the point of that was that, like, the gospel, uh, like, I'm reminded of a Tim Keller quote. We, we throw out Keller a lot around here. And, and he says that the gospel uh, comforts the afflicted, but it also afflicts the comfortable. And so maybe we're going to have a little bit of that today, a little bit of both the, the comforting of the afflicted and the affliction of the comfortable. So Matthew 5, 27. Uh, so last week, Pastor Brett talked about anger, and, and uh, I suspect that there was nobody uh, unscathed last week in our, in our talk about uh, anger, where, where Jesus equates uh, anger in your heart uh, as the starting point that leads to murder, right? That, that, that if you are guilty of anger, uh, in your heart that you're guilty of anger. And Jesus uh, is going to do more of the same today uh, as he talks about lust. And he starts out in verse 27 saying that you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. And, and we're going to pause right there for a second because I want to do a little bit of kind of setup work here um, to the importance of adultery. Adultery is the seventh commandment, right, of, of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It's a seventh commandment, and this is really a, a word-for-word word for word uh, translation or a word for word uh, citation of the seventh commandment that you shall not commit adultery. So, not only the seventh commandment, but the tenth commandment in Exodus 20 also says that you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you should not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so, there's kind of a connecting of the dots here uh, with both the seventh and the ten com- tenth commandment. But we have to ask the question. When Jesus says that you shall not commit adultery, well, what is adultery? And that might seem like a, a simple question uh, to answer, but, but I want to I spend a moment here and uh, kind of build a biblical sexual ethic so that we can feel the, the weight of this commandment and the weight of the law. In order to do that, we've got to back up uh, into Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 28. God, God had created everything, right? He created the heavens and the moon and the sun and the stars and the birds and the bugs and the fish and everything simply by speaking into nothingness and creating something out of the nothingness. And at the pinnacle of creation, God creates humanity, He creates Adam and Eve, right? Our, our first parents. And he gives them this command in Genesis 1 He says, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so, God, at the pinnacle of creation, the first thing that He says to His newly created human beings is to be fruitful and multiply. And so, and so, we can take a bit of a sexual ethic from that uh, that God has given us right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter two, where we zero in a little bit more on the creation of Adam and Eve, God gives us this. He says in Genesis 2.24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so what we can draw from those two things, again, is is a sexual ethic that's given to us right at the very beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of recorded history as we know it, That, that the union of marriage we see established from the beginning that that a man and a wife will come together and the two will become one flesh. And so part of how those two become one flesh is in the consummation of the marriage. And then we're given in Genesis chapter 1 the command to be fruitful and multiply. So kind of the normative thing among Christians in marriage is that, that the two flesh become one and that they multiply, right? They multiply, and so we have a sexual ethic from that, from the very beginning that informs how we view marriage, how we view fidelity within marriage, how we view the purpose of the marriage. There's a lot we could say on this that I'm not going to get into today, but just want to spend a minute kind of building this ethic uh, into us as we look at this command uh, to not commit adultery. Some people would say, uh, kind of in, in modernity, some people would say that, that the Bible is outdated. <laughs> That the Bible's sexual ethic is is antiquated. That culture has moved beyond it. That that in in our modern society, it's it's a great freedom that we explore uh, our sexuality, right? And I don't, don't want to read things into the text that aren't there. But this is probably just worth briefly mentioning. In, in our modern society and in our exploration of our sexuality at the end of the day, we're we're going against God's prescription that he's given us from the outset. And I might be preaching to the choir here in this and and that's okay, but God has given us a prescription how to live. He's given us an, an ethic of marriage and sexuality baked into our spiritual DNA from the beginning. And he's given this this prescription how to live not only for his glory, but it's also for our good. Right? We, we tend to think in our, in our modern way of thinking that, that our highest good is that we don't have anything to encumber us. We don't have any boundaries. We don't have anybody to say, no, don't do that, that we have the freedom to explore and to do whatever we want and to be whatever we want to be. And I think an honest look at the Bible would say that, that we don't have the freedom to explore. We don't have the freedom to be whatever we want to be. God has given us boundaries in which to live that are for our good. God says no to some things, not because he's prudish, not because he's mean, not because he's a killjoy. God says no to some things because he's good. And when we look at these things that God says no to and says, well, I have the freedom to do them, it's an affront to God. It's an affront to God and it's an attack at the end of the day on the gospel. And so God has given us these boundaries for our good and for his glory, but we look outside of those things for our purpose and fulfillment. We've talked about this many times before. You've never wanted things so bad until somebody says that you can't have it, right? <laughs> you didn't even think about that thing until somebody said, don't do that. And we even can see in Genesis that in the garden. The one thing that God said no to was the one thing that Adam and Eve wanted. He said, everything's yours. Everything's yours. Have dominion over it. You rule over everything, except don't eat fruit of that one tree. And what do they do? I'm going to go check that tree out. <laughs> because God said, no. The, and, and so this is part of our human DNA. And so from the beginning, God has given us an ethic of sexuality, an ethic within marriage, again, for our good and for his glory. And then we get to Exodus where he gives us ten commandments to live by. And, and one of those commandments is don't commit adultery. Another one of those commandments is don't covet your neighbor's wife or don't covet something that belongs to you. And he says don't do those things. Again, not because he's a killjoy, but for our good and for his glory. I read the other day about um, a new term called a thruple. And instead of like a couple is two, a thruple is three. That's a new thing in our society of exploring one's freedom and exploring one's sexuality, where three people can be in a relationship because two, whatever, not, not good enough, not, not open enough, right? That's a thing. And I just look at some of these things sometimes and I just shake my head. Not because I'm offended by it, maybe sometimes, but, but generally, I can look at these kinds of things and, and it just causes heartbreak to think that, that we're going against what God said is good. If there is a God, if God does exist, we ought to pay attention to what he has to say, right? If God is the creator of everything, if there is a God who spoke into the nothingness and, and brought something out of it, right? You and I can't do that. We can't look into the nothingness and say, let there be, and then anything will result of that. So if there's a God that is able to speak into the nothingness and bring something out of it, if there's a God who is able to create human beings and breathe life into them if there was a God that that gave us this ethic of of a man and a woman coming together, the two flesh becoming one if there's a God that gave us the command to be fruitful and to multiply if there's a God who is sovereign over the universe and orders and controls everything who, who are we to look at him and say these things aren't good who are we to look at him and say well there's a better way Who are we to look at him and say, I'm I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm going to live my own way. Yet, we do that. We do that. I I read a report a few months back that said, uh, as of, I want to say it was 2018 or 19, it was a a couple of years old, but uh, as of whatever date it was, only 18% of households in the United States uh, have married parents. Now, this takes into account, you know, call it you know, singles and like every household in the United States. I don't know what the target number should be or what it was. I don't know the history of this particular report, but only 18% of households right now have married parents. That can't be good. That can't be good. And, and, and again, it's, it's an affront to the ethic that God has given us. And the reason I bring these things up, again, I, I want us to kind of feel the weight of this command to not commit adultery. And so I asked the question earlier, what what is adultery? Well, simply put, adultery is marital infidelity. That's the the Bible's view of adultery is marital infidelity. Not an uncommon thing in our culture at all. And I understand that there may be some here today that have walked this path of adultery and, and maybe talking about these things and bringing these things up might cause you some guilt or some shame, and that's not my goal today. And rest assured that that by the end, we're going to get to redemption. We're going to get to how God redeems us uh, from our sinfulness, and God redeems us from the things that we do uh, that are against him. And I also understand there might be some here today who have not walked the path of adultery. Maybe you've walked the straight and narrow in this regard. Uh, And I understand the tendency, if that's you, to maybe be feeling a little bit of pride at the moment saying I didn't do I've not done that I've not even thought about it rest assured the good news of the gospel that we're going to get to hopefully will deliver a helpful dose of humility to those that need it today too right And so Jesus says, you have heard it said, in other words, referring to the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not be unfaithful within the bounds of marriage. And it's worth noting that this sexual ethic that the Bible gives us really is pretty narrow, especially as society just moves more and more kind of leftward, if you will. The sexual ethic of the Bible is becoming more and more narrow, more and more um, restrictive, according to modern culture. But the Bible would say that that anything, any kind of sexual activity outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman, anything outside of that is wrong. Anything outside of that is, is against God's design that again ultimately is for our good and for his glory. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at saying, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. In verse 28, he says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if you're one of the ones that for a moment was feeling a little bit of pride and I haven't gone down that path, he says, if you have even looked at a woman. And I don't think Jesus here is, is speaking only to men, right? In, in the context of the text, he's speaking to men, but women, you're not off the hook on this, okay? He says, I say to you that if that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, it, it doesn't necessarily matter that you haven't walked that path, that you haven't physically committed the act of adultery, but if you have thought in this way, if you've looked at another human being with lustful intent, guilty as charged. Kind of like last week with with murder, probably most of us, if not all of us sitting here, could say, well, I've never killed anybody. But Jesus says, if you had anger in your heart, guilty as charged. This is the same kind of thing. If you have had lustful intent in your heart, guilty as charged. And this is where Maybe a helpful dose of humility can come for those that need it as Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. Who can survive this indictment? Who who of us as human beings with flesh and blood and thoughts and desires has not looked upon another human being with lustful intent? None of us can raise our hand and say, not me. And so Jesus has this way of just getting to the heart of the matter that says that the problem is not external to you. The problem is internal, and it begins inside of you. It begins, in, it begins with the things that you even think about. Right? Some, some people might say that your thoughts don't necessarily matter as long as you don't act on them. But Jesus is saying here that, that our thoughts can be sinful. Not every thought that we have is sinful, but probably far more thoughts maybe than we realize are sinful. And Jesus is calling us all out on this. John, in his first epistle, says this in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so Jesus is speaking strictly on a sexual ethic here. John broadens it up a little bit in what he talks about, and he zeroes in that that we have desires of our flesh, the things that make us feel good. Physical activities that, that we get pleasure from, the desires of the eyes, the things that we can see and that we can say, I want that. And John, I I don't think, is talking just about sexuality here. John is is much more broad. And then we have this kind of more ethereal thing. So the things that we feel, the things that we see, and this more ethereal thing, the pride of life. The thing inside of me that says, I'm going to go after this thing that I want, or this thing that makes me feel good, this thing that I see. The pride of life that says, you know what, maybe God doesn't know what's best for me. Maybe God doesn't know what's good for me. Or even such a pride that says, I know that God says that this isn't good, but I want it anyway, and I'm going to go after it anyway. We all have that in us. Every single one of us has that in us. And John is reminding us of this truth, and he's reminding us that the world, these kinds of things are going to pass. Things that we Feel right now, the things that we see right now, this pride that we have in them, there's going to be a day where those things are no more. The world is passing away along with all of its desires. But John reminds us that whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, when we actually take God at His word, and when we believe that the things that God says are not good, when we actually believe those things aren't good, And when we trust in God's goodness to us, that we would abstain from these things that God says no to, that that's going to abide forever. So again, who who can survive the indictment? Some of us can survive the the indictment that says don't commit adultery, but none of us can survive the indictment that says if you even have thoughts in that direction that you're guilty as if you've committed the act. Nobody can stand Nobody can survive. So now that we've leveled the playing field a bit, right? We, we all are in this space where our thoughts indict us. I don't know your thoughts, you don't know my thoughts, but, but my Bible tells me that we all have thoughts that aren't good. Right? Our Bible, in the last two weeks, have told us that, that we have thoughts fueled by anger, that that's the same thing as murder, that we have thoughts that are fueled by sexual infidelity, that that's adultery. So we're all indicted in some way here. And then Jesus goes on in verse 29 of Matthew chapter 5 to talk about how we battle our sin and the seriousness of sin. He says that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it's better that you lose one of your members, than your whole body go into hell. And so Jesus is enacting some hyperbole here. I don't know that he's meaning literally gouge out your eye or, or literally cut off your hand uh, or your arm, but in the ancient world the the right the right was was the good the good side, the left was the bad side, right and so The right eye is the dominant eye. The right hand is the the dominant hand. And what Jesus is saying here is that even if you're in your battle with sin, it causes you in your fight with sin to be crippled in this life, so be it. It's better that you would be crippled and maimed in this life than that you would go to hell because you choose not to battle your sin. Or at the end of the day, because you, you lack faith To believe what God says is good is good. And so if that means cutting out your dominant eye, do it. If that means cutting off your dominant hand, do it. Because it's better than the alternative. And so we learn learn a couple things here. We we learn that that Jesus takes sin seriously. We we learn that Jesus takes even the thoughts of our mind seriously seriously. Because he knows, you and I don't have the ability to look at each other and, and read minds, but Jesus knows our thoughts. And he takes them very seriously. We learn that from this, these verses that if we don't battle our sin, if we just give in to our sin, that there's eternal consequences from giving in to our sin. And I hope we're feeling some weight of that. Our sin, our rebellion against God, that's what sin is, rebellion against our creator. Our sin, our sin leads us to hell. And our sin leads us rightfully and deservingly to hell because of our rebellion against our creator. And again, we're, we're going to get to the redemptive peace here in a moment. Redemption is coming. But, but feel, feel the weight of sin right now. Feel the weight and the consequence of sin that goes unbattled. I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to uh, talk to someone who, who I had recently uh, met, so not, not somebody that I know well. Um, it was through, um, through uh, my day job, through work, and uh, this person knew that I was a pastor and, and wanted to get together one afternoon and, and sat down. And he's like, I just feel compelled that I want to share my story with you. He, he's a Christian as well. And it's like, I want to share my story with you. Um, and he pulled out his phone and he had a counter, like a day counter on his phone. And he says, I've been uh, sober for 3,000, I forget the number, but 3,000 some odd days uh, from sexual infidelity. And he shared this story how over a long period of time, 20 years, uh, that he struggled, struggled with things from pornography to prostitution and everything in between, and, and just struggled from it, and uh, one day got caught, a number of years ago, got caught in it by his wife, um, and his wife um, seems like a neat lady, uh, stuck by his side and was faithful to him, and their marriage has survived this long list of, of infidelity, and he's like, I just feel compelled. I wanted to share my story with you so you would know about it. Um, make myself available to anybody that you know that maybe has these kinds of struggles. He's like, I've been there, I've done it all, and I'm, and I'm willing to talk to anybody and help. Right? And just, just a neat story of redemption in, in this couple's life. Uh, that, that, that By all accounts, their marriage should not have survived. But it did, and, and I think one of the reasons that it did is because the man was serious about his sin when he got caught actually shared that he was relieved to get caught because he knew what he was doing was wrong and knew over a long period of time that it was wrong. And, and the day that he got caught, he said for him, was, it was a relief that, that it was out there now. It was a relief that, that he got caught. It was a relief that, that, um, you know, that, that his wife stood by his side. It's a relief uh, that, that it's out in the open. It's a relief that he has accountability. And he's a guy that I think has battled his sin pretty well. Not to say that it hasn't been difficult, but he's battled his sin. And in his case, he, he figuratively cut out the eye that caused him to stumble. He cut off the hand that caused him to stumble and made some major changes in his life, in his battle with sin, because, because he felt the weight. He felt the weight of his sin. He felt the weight of the law, of God's law that says, don't do that. And God granted him repentance. God has granted him faith to believe in God's goodness and lives a life now, I I believe, to God's glory in sharing his story. It's a hard thing to talk about, but, but he understands the redemption in it as well, and he's able to share that story. And so as we feel the weight, the weight of the law, we feel the weight of the indictment that kind of none of us can survive this indictment and not commit adultery, if in fact it does start in the thought process. If it starts there, right, we're all in trouble. What does it look like? What, what is it? How, how do we battle our sin? John Stott, I think, has a helpful piece on this in his commentary on this passage. And John Stott says this, he says, what does this involve in practice, the, the cutting, out of, cutting off the hand, the gouging of the eye? He says, let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching that if your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, objects you see then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind so that you could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, the things that you do, or your feet, the places that you visit, then cut them off. That is... off their hands and feet, and had flung them away and were now crippled, that could not do the things or visit the places which the, the sin. That is the meaning of a word that we call mortification. Mortification means that we look at our sin and we see the ugliness of it. We look at our sin and we feel the weight of it. We look at our sin and we know that, that before we sin against any person, that we sin first and foremost against God. Mortification is when we have this view of our sin that says, I gotta do something about this. I've got to battle it. Right? And sin is a hard thing to battle. We like, we like our sin. If we didn't like it, we wouldn't do it. If it wasn't enjoyable, we wouldn't engage in it or participate in it. If it didn't bring us some kind of satisfaction, we wouldn't participate. It. But it does bring us at least some kind of temporary. Satisfaction. Fill in the blank. of what, Whatever you insert, your sin here, right? We do it because we like it. And what Scott is telling us is that we have to look at our sin and realize that, that we sin against God, and that we should mortify the sin. We should see it for what it is, see the ugliness for what it is, and that we should engage in the battle with our sin. Now, I don't know about you, but the, the battle of the mind is—that's a tough one. I can refrain from doing things. Maybe not always, but but often. Maybe I'm driven because I don't want you to see me doing something bad or wrong. right? That that can be a motivation for me not to engage in something. But my thoughts, right, my thoughts, I'm the only one that knows my thoughts. You don't know the things that go on in my head. God knows, but, but you don't know, right? And so the battle of the mind is—it's a tricky—it's a tricky battle. The Bible tells us that we ought to take every thought captive. And I don't know if you've ever tried to take your thoughts captive, but that's a hard one. Sometimes you catch yourself thinking about something that's like, "Ah, I probably shouldn't be thinking about this right now." How do you stop? How do you take that thought captive and say, "I'm, I'm going to set my mind on other things"? That's hard. That's hard work. The Bible tells us to take our thoughts captive. Stott reminds us that we ought to mortify our sin, see it for what it is, and reject it. And so again, what we we see from Jesus' command to cut out the eye and cut off the hand that causes you to stumble is a call to engage in the battle of our sin. And probably one of the scariest places for a professing Christian to be is to not be... Engaging in the battle with sin. I remember a young man years ago who this was his struggle as well that, that I had opportunity to talk to many, many times. He would show up down here and he would say, I, you know, I, I did some things I shouldn't do. He would confess these sins. Um, over and over and over. I mean, it was almost a weekly thing for a long time. I did it again. And he would come in and he would say things like, well, maybe God doesn't love me because I keep committing these sins. He would would say, maybe I'm not a child of God because I can't stop doing these things, committing sexual sins. And he would just, the guilt was thick on his bed. He couldn't get past his guilt and his shame. And my counsel to him was that, at least to some extent, take heart that you see these things as wrong. that's the Holy Spirit in you that that you can recognize that what you're doing isn't right it's the Holy Spirit in you that that says I have to stop I can't do this anymore and and the Bible tells us that we have a battle waging inside of us between the spirit and the flesh the spirit's pulling us one way the flesh is pulling us another It's it's a brutal war inside of us a lot of times we might not notice it, but sometimes we really feel that tug between the spirit and the flesh. Now this guy, he would he would commit an act, and then he'd, like, he would be feeling that pull, and he would come in and yeah, just would be beside himself. And I was trying to encourage him that, that, that at the very least, the fact that you are trying to bow your sin, like that's something. It's not nothing. Now that's not an excuse to continue over and over, just, you know, oops, I did again. Oops, that happened one, one more time. That's not an excuse for that. My point is, is that, that if, you, if you don't see a problem with your sin, that's a problem. But at the very least, if you see your sin for what it is, especially things that go on in your mind, that's God in his kindness to you, his goodness to you, showing you and open up, opening up your eyes to something that's not good. And so battle that sin knowing that the God that has opened your eyes to it will help you in the battle with it. Many of us probably are not going to change on a dime. Like, like whatever people's battle with sin is, just being been a pastor for a long time. I don't, I don't often see people just overnight, like, okay, it's, this was a problem yesterday. It's not a problem today. Don't see that very often. See sometimes, but not very often. Right? Most of us have to wage an ongoing battle and build into our life measures of accountability and, and be willing to talk about it with people to say, like, I said, you real, and here's, here's my struggle. Can you help me with it? I worked with another young man years ago who had a fairly significant struggle with pornography, and he just got to the point where he just kind of lost all of his shame about it, which is like he just realized his need for help. And so he would pick up the phone. He had three or four guys that he could call just any time of the day or night and say, like, I'm, I'm struggling right now. I want to go get my computer, and I want to log on to the website. And, and he would just pick up the phone and say, I need help. What can you do for me? And sometimes we'd drop what we were doing, and we'd get together. Sometimes it would be a phone conversation. Always it would be prayer right then and there. But this was a guy that, that took his battle seriously and was willing to kind of lose you know, lose his his shame over and call people and say, I really want to do this, and help. He asked for help. And I think over time, he's had some success in that battle. I knew another guy years ago who who one day was uh, in his living room, sitting next to his fireplace. He had just bought a laptop for work. And in a weak moment, logged on to a website that he shouldn't have logged on to. And in that moment, he mortified, he was mortified by his sin and this brand new laptop. He just chucked it into the fireplace. He gouged out the eye in that moment. Then he called me, he's like, you're never going to guess what I just did. Like, good for you, man. Good for you. Like, he mortified his sin and he took it seriously. So Jesus gives us this, this command, you shall not commit adultery, but the act of adultery, it starts up here. It starts in the morning. So none of us can survive the indictment to not commit adultery. We have already committed adultery in our heart. Jesus tells us that in our battle with sin that we ought to take it seriously enough that if we would maim our bodies in our battle with sin in order to mortify it, okay, that's how serious the stakes of sin are. Sin leads us to hell. So, so why, why does a biblical sexual ethic matter in today's society? Again, this is becoming more and more of an unpopular message <clears throat> as, as cultural values continue to change. Right? But the Bible would say, throuple? No. <laughs> not good. And the Bible would say, cohabitating, living as if you're married or not being married. Not good. The Bible would say, homosexuality? Not good. Transgenderism, not good, and all of these things, not good. They're wrong and they're sinful. And I think we we maybe would all agree with that, or mostly agree with that. But why does it matter all that much? We're told in Ephesians chapter five that, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, that the wives are to respect their husbands. But we're also told in this passage that the mystery the mystery of God's sexual ethic the mystery of marriage between one man and one woman in a monogamous heterosexual committed relationship the mystery of it we're told by Paul is profound he says I'm saying that this mystery this mystery of monogamous heterosexual marriage He says that it refers to Christ and the church. And so Christian marriage shows us something about who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. That's why it matters. That's why it matters when Jesus says, don't be unfaithful in your marriage. That's why it matters when from the beginning we have an ethic of marriage and sexuality lined out for us because it shows us something about who God is and what he's done for us. It shows us a picture of the gospel. You and I were sinners. We know it. We know it. And what did we do? We, we all found another sinner that, that we thought was attractive and we liked and we married them. And then you know what we did? We were fruitful and we multiplied. And what did we multiply? We multiplied more sinners into the world. And what did those sinners do? They grew up, and they like they found a maid, They married, and they procreated, and brought more sinners into the world. Vicious cycle, isn't <laughs> it? It's a vicious, vicious cycle. But but we're told in the midst of all of this that that when the world sees Christians committed to God's sexual ethic, married within the bounds that God has given us, that it's profound. And it's a witness to the world about Christ and the church and how Christ is faithful to the church. I've heard many pastors say before that the, the moment that Christ becomes unfaithful to the church then you can become unfaithful to your spouse. The reality is Christ is never going to be unfaithful to the church. Therefore, we don't have permission for infidelity within our marriages. We don't have permission to live outside of of god's good design for human flourishing within the bounds of marriage and sexuality that he's given us and so now that maybe some of you who have been afflicted by sin maybe you're feeling some comfort here some of you who have been comfortable with sin maybe you're feeling some affliction here here's the redemptive piece of this and so Again, none of us can stand this indictment, and I, and I hope, again, that we're feeling just the weight of sin and the weight of the law. Because in order to feel that weight, it makes redemptive, the redemptive piece of it all the more sweet. Titus 3, 3-8 tells us this, that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days with malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Again, kind of a scathing indictment of humanity. But, he goes on to say, when the goodness the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the rule of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The same is trustworthy, And i want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in god may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for people so the bad news is that we can't survive the indictment like we're all we're all guilty we're all guilty of, of breaking god's law the good news is that there there is hope for sinners in that god redeems lawbreakers god redeems us of our sin not because of us or anything that we've done to earn it or deserve it, but we're told because of His goodness and His loving kindness. Not because of anything we've done, but because of His own mercy that He washes us and He regenerates us and He renews us through the Holy Spirit and He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. And so feel the weight of your sin, feel the weight of the law, feel the indictment that says you're a lawbreaker, but also feel the redemption that comes to us through Christ. See, the problem is that we're powerless to redeem ourselves. If we had any ability to redeem ourselves, no need for God to step into human flesh. We have zero ability to redeem ourselves. We're given this command not to commit adultery Jesus knowing full well that we're all guilty of it because it starts in our mind knowing that we're guilty of it And God didn't step into human flesh to come to point the finger and say you've all messed up God stepped into human flesh to say come to me so that I can redeem you of your sinfulness and my brokenness so that I can give to you in place of your sinfulness my righteousness something that couldn't happen apart from him stepping into human flesh So this is where we can take some comfort we can we can feel the weight of the law we can mortify our sin but we can take comfort in the fact that Christ has come to redeem these are ever-present help in times of trouble the Bible tells us we're told that this saying is trustworthy and to insist on these things in other words this is absolute truth This is absolute true. So for those that have walked the path of adultery, know that there's redemption in Christ. For those who are sitting in some pride saying, I haven't done that, know that the humility that comes from knowing that you're a sinner, that's a good thing. That's a good thing because it draws you closer to Christ. And then Titus, at the end of this passage, reminds us, For those who have believed in God to be careful to devote yourself to good works. Be careful. In other words, don't don't chase your thoughts down the rabbit hole when when you know that they're not going in a good direction. And you know. It's not very often that we think later, oh, that thing was sinful and wrong. We we, we know. We usually know in the moment this isn't good. Yet we we go down the rabbit hole anyway. We're told to devote ourselves to good works. Not following our thoughts wherever they may lead, saying no when we know that things are not heading in a good direction. And we're told that this is excellent and profitable for people. So rest in the redemption that is in Christ. Rest in the humility that comes from knowing Christ, knowing that He knows everything about you, including the things that you think, and He loves you anyway. You do some of the things I thought you might think less of me than you now. Jesus knows everything that's going on in our heads. He loves us anyway. Engage in the battle with sin. Mortify your sin and trust in Christ that he's going to give you what you need to battle with your sin. Father, we're thankful today that you love us. Thankful that, that you do know everything about us, yet you still love us anyway, even knowing that you thoughts that run through our heads. You love us and, and you have provided for us Uh, A way of redemption uh, from our sin, that you uh, grant us repentance, that you uh, grant us faith, you allow us to trust in you. And so, God, help us in this area of our lives that we would trust you with the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life, that you would help us to recognize those things for what they are. You'd help us to recognize that this world is passing but your kingdom will last forever. Help us, God, to have faith in you. Help us to trust in what you say is good. Help us to trust in what you say no to. God, give us the faith that we need uh, to follow you, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen.